This is The Guardian. A warning before we start that we mentioned suicidal thoughts in this episode. Today, why are councils relying on bad landlords to house families? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm here in my room. I stay here with myself and two children. The other two children stay upstairs. I'm in a terrace house in East London, sitting on a bed, talking to a woman we're calling Leia. We've changed her voice as well. The reason we're sitting on her bed is because there's nowhere else in this room. Her children's bed is heaped up with their clothes and the rest of the floor space is taken up by suitcases, food and cleaning products. Every time she needs something, she has to dig through this huge pile. Leia and her children became homeless and the local council offered her two rooms in a house with people she didn't know. So altogether, 10 at the moment, but there have been weeks where there were 13 and 14 people living here. This is what's known as a house of multiple occupation, somewhere that more than three people who aren't from the same family live together. And to run one where five or more people live, landlords need a licence to mark that the house meets standards like having enough bathrooms. But this house hasn't got a licence. There's one bathroom, one full complete bathroom with a bath, and we've got a lean-to slash outside water closet. There's no shower. The guidelines do say it needs to have a shower to be classed as two bathrooms. The children doesn't like using it because there's spiders and everything in there. The week before half term, we had eight children getting ready for school. It was a nightmare. Leia's nervous about showing me round because she doesn't want the other people in the house to hear. From day to day, she never knows who's going to be living there. Leia's doing her best to cope for her family, but it's clear the toll that this is taking on her. Now you just want to give up, but then you think if you give up, who's going to help the little ones who can't help themselves? I think that's what keeps me going all the time. From The Guardian... I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the world of unlicensed bedsits. It was last week. I got woken up by a noise and then I checked the front door. I could always double check it and it was open. This was just before 1am and the front door was open. And then while my son was in the toilet, we heard a smashed And I said to him, is that you? Is that you? He goes, no, mum, that was outside. So I started panicking. And then when I went to the kitchen door to look, I saw like a shadow. And then the back door was open. So I said, come on, son, let's get into the bedroom now and lock the door. The following morning, the lady upstairs apologised and said it was her partner that dropped her plant pot outside the window. 
So there were mainly three men from the day I moved in back in May. There were three men living here. And then the additional man that came with the family upstairs. So it's just, it's just not safe because if I've got my girls, there's different men, they're not our family. And I've got to supervise. I'm walking around like a zombie because I'm not, I'm being sleep deprived. And then if I'm locked into my bedroom and my daughter is upstairs, if she's then going to the bathroom during the night, she's subject to, or there's other men walking about the house. It's not fair on her. One of your daughters has got disabilities. Can you tell me a bit about what her needs are? She has mobility issues. She's got learning disabilities and this makes her frustrated when she needs to use the bathroom and she can't go when she needs to go. What's it like for you being here? I mean sort of like firstly for you as a mum and individually for you yourself. Frustrated. I feel like I haven't got any dignity. I'm having to dress in front of my child. Sometimes he goes out the bedroom, sometimes he just turn his back sometimes and say, I'm okay, mum, I don't need to leave. Because sometimes it's unfair to keep kicking him out of the bedroom. A few Saturdays ago, I had a meltdown. I, I woke up and the children had to get ready for their online lessons. And they waited ages to use the bathroom. And I thought, I couldn't do this anymore. It's so unfair on the children. That meltdown really stressed me out. I hit rock bottom. I was going to phone the Samaritans, but I didn't really want to. I just thought I can't deal with all of that. Um, it was just too much to deal with at the time. So I got up and picked myself up. But then I went back to lie down and I just cried the Saturday morning away. It was just really bad. What's it like being in that sort of headspace? A lot of time I feel suicidal. I feel like I can't do this anymore. And it's sad because... That's a sign of weakness because you can't cope. But then how much can you take is too much. It's just too much. Rob Booth, you're the social affairs correspondent for The Guardian and you've been working on The Guardian's Living Hell series, which is covering all sorts of the problems that there are with rental accommodation in Britain at the moment. What made you want to look into this as an issue? I think one of the big things that jumps out when you see the census figures that came out from the 2021 census was the huge growth, the doubling that there has been in 20 years in the size of the population who rely on private rented housing now. So 11 million people, 5 million households are now living in private rented accommodation and people are getting older and older in private rented accommodation too. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer just that sort of transitional period in our lives when you move on to, for people of my generation, I'm nearly 50, you know, we were able to move on to buying places. That's not a pathway that's open now for many people. And so it's become a much more significant part of our social fabric as a nation. We've spoken before on Today in Focus about the awful living conditions that some people are in, in rented accommodation and how the prices of them is just going up and up. In this episode, we're focusing on a particular type of rental property, houses of multiple occupation. And you've been speaking, I know, to people, including Leia, who are sharing houses with people who aren't their partners or their immediate family. 
what exactly defines an HMO? So an HMO is a home that has at least three tenants living there, forming more than one household. Right. So could that be like a bunch of students renting together? Yes. The other thing that has to apply is that there has to be toilet, bathroom or kitchen facilities shared. So, you know, it's a kind of rooming house. They're bedsits. In most cases, you know, it's lots of single people or lots of small households living together. There are rules, of course, about how many are supposed to live in HMOs, how much space they're supposed to have each and how much access they're supposed to have to kitchens and bathrooms. You're not supposed to have loads and loads of people sharing one bathroom. There's a schedule in which you kind of have to have an increasing number of bathrooms depending on the number of people. So for example, with 13 people in the HMO we're talking about, that would need at least three bathrooms and three toilets. That's according to the council's own rules for HMOs. Rooms are not allowed to be used by more than two people. People of the opposite sex over the age of 10 should not be sharing a room unless they're a couple. And All these rules are being broken. Why would landlords choose to run an HMO rather than renting out their property to one family? What are the advantages for them? One big reason is that investors figure that they can make a better return on their investment each year. So HMOs will be netting investors' returns averaging around 6 7 and sometimes 10% a year. And that's greater than they can get from a conventional buy-to-let investment. There are lots other reasons too. So for example, in an HMO, say you've got, you know, eight, nine people living there. If one leaves, that's a small problem. It's not like the whole household has left. So for landlords that want consistent money coming in, which all landlords do, HMOs work better. So to run an HMO, landlords need a licence from their local council. But Leia says that hers is operating without a licence. How usual is that? I mean, any HMO with more than five people living in it needs a licence, according to the national government. And it's very hard for councils to police this. The only real way that they can do it is by intelligence and sending out kind of enforcement teams to try and find HMOs. Right. And those departments are fairly skeletally staffed at the moment. So the chances are that there are quite a lot of unlicensed HMOs in operation. And you've, in the course of your work, seen plenty of rented accommodation in all sorts of different conditions. What are some of the worst examples of HMOs that you've seen? I remember earlier this year, actually, in March, there were at least 18 men who had been squeezed into a two-bedroom council flat. Several of them were delivery couriers, and one of them had been charging the batteries for his bike, caught fire. There was a huge blaze, and sadly, one of the residents in that illegal HMO died. There's, you know, examples of of it not just causing misery, but causing real danger to human life. And then this month, we've just had the record fine for an HMO, which was handed out by the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, nearly half a million pounds, the company that ran the HMO was fined for. They were running a 22-room HMO in Kensington and Chelsea. Upper floors were so damp that there was mushrooms growing out of the fabric of the building. There were defective, damaged fire doors, burnt out of loose electrical sockets. So these are the kind of places that, you know, For several years now, we've been seeing in all corners of the country. And, you know, a lot of people will be listening to this and thinking, yeah, I've lived in some dodgy rented accommodation. But what you're describing is extreme. Who's having to live in those conditions? 
often it's younger people who are keen to live close to the centre of towns and cities and they're willing to sacrifice space in order to be central. Often it's people who simply want to spend the lowest amount of money because they haven't got very much money to spend on rent. And then often it's people who have few choices, perhaps because something difficult has happened in their life, maybe a relationship breakdown or they've been thrown out by their family. And so as a consequence, it's often some of the most vulnerable people in society who end up living in HMOs. Can you tell me a bit about how you ended up being here? Because the council found you this property, didn't they? So we became homeless and we were put in a couple of hotels. So it was 10 times we've moved. When we moved here, that was the 10th time. Did you have any choice at all in where you were moved to? I mean, presumably the council understands what the needs of your family are. No choice. I begged them to even give us something that self-contained. Um, even if it was one bedroom, at least my disabled child had her own bathroom. But they didn't really care. They were like, well, there's people in your situation that's living in the same sort of accommodation. There's nothing we can do and then tell us to find private rental accommodation. But going private, you have to be earning something like £70,000 per year. So it's quite difficult. The rental market is, is saturated. And I think there's a lot of discrimination as well. Have you actually managed to get to look around any places? Or is it you apply for places or you contact estate agents and it's just you're cut off before you uh, even get to see places? A number of times... They just block you, like you don't meet the criteria. The landlord is not going to take anyone on benefits. Rob, what help can local councils give to people who are on the waiting list? They're homeless, they need to find somewhere to live. What are local councils supposed to do for them? Well, local councils have to discern if someone is in housing need, and if they are, they have a kind of obligation to assist them. Now, the difficulty is, of course, they have got limited resources to do that. One option, of course, is social housing, so council housing, but there hasn't been much of that built. There's huge waiting lists for that already, which is why councils are looking to landlords who run HMOs, because they can slot households in and they can try and get back on their feet while living in an HMO for a couple of months before they find somewhere better to live. Now, the sort of market for that kind of housing is getting tighter for councils. Landlords that councils use are increasingly selling up. So councils are being informed that there is less and less property available for them. Very recently, the local government association, which represents councils, urged the government to treat this situation as the emergency it is, in their words, because councils are now paying £1.7 billion a year, more than any time in recent history. So councils have this duty to look after people and help them with their accommodation needs if they qualify, but their means to do so are diminishing. Leia said to me that she'd been looking at renting somewhere privately But she found, and I've seen this, I'm sure you've seen this on adverts, that lots of letting agents won't accept families who are receiving benefits. Is it legal for landlords to refuse benefits claimants? So courts have ruled against landlords that have done that. The government's housing white paper last year said that it plans to make it illegal for landlords or agents to have blanket bans on renting to those in receipt of benefits. When the renters' reform bill was presented this wasn't included 
But the government did say that it is intending to implementing these reforms and will bring forward legislation at the earliest opportunity. Waltham Forest Council placed Leia and her family in this house. You've reported her allegations to them. What have they said? Well, the first thing is, any HMO with more than five people in it needs to be licensed. And this HMO was not licensed. It was not on their register. So they shouldn't really have been sending her there. Councillor Asan Khan, the council's deputy leader and cabinet member for housing and regeneration, said, while we find more settled accommodation to meet their needs. We have arranged for an officer to visit the property and carry out an urgent inspection. We apologise to the families for any problems they have experienced. We work hard to ensure that households who approach us at risk of being made homeless have a roof over their heads while we seek a suitable long-term solution for them. And then he says this, We simply do not have enough homes to meet the demand. We know the only way out of this crisis is to build more homes for social rent. I think you can get a sense there that they're wishing to do the right thing, but simply unable to do it. And the fact that the council, which runs the licensing scheme, has sent people into a HMO which is unlicensed and is not on its licensing scheme tells you everything we need to know, really. Once they've placed people into HMOs, should they be carrying out sort of checks every six months or so to see that the conditions are actually being met by the landlord? Well, I don't know about Waltham Forest particularly, but I know from talking to other boroughs that they don't have enough environmental health officers to be able to check on the thousands of these HMOs that are everywhere. I mean, I've been out with them in other parts of London and the checks will often run that the environmental health officer will knock on the door, someone will answer, and if they are invited in, they'll often go straight to the bathroom and count the number of toothbrushes. That's the quick way of trying to work out if there's five bedrooms and there's 10 toothbrushes, then you might start to ask questions. You know, it is at that level. It's not systematic. In an ideal world, this would perhaps be more strongly regulated, but the more you regulate it, the more you risk pushing out even bad landlords. Some of these bad landlords are actually needed at the moment. That's the position that we're in. What would you hope for for next year in terms of sorting out somewhere to live? To get a home. I'm hoping to get somewhere before Christmas because nobody wants to be here for Christmas. If my last child said, there's nowhere to put a tree, Mum, we're really not staying here for Christmas. He started getting really frustrated and I have to be really positive and say, the house is coming. And sometimes we go out to shop and he'll be like, Mum, you know, we need to budget, Mum, because we need a house. Remember, we need to stay focused so we can get a house. Aww. So he's sort of trying to cut back on things so mm. that we can afford a house. So, yeah. And he goes, don't worry, Mum. I'll do really well and we'll have a big house. Don't worry. Coming up, how one of London's worst landlords got away with it for years. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. 
Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. So, Rob, even though tenants have legal protections and local authorities can seek to prosecute rogue landlords, it's clear that some of them are just carrying on regardless. You've been writing this week about one of London's so-called worst landlords. Tell me a bit about him. Yeah, this is a man by the name of Mohammed Razul, and he has been a landlord since about 2014. He's still only in his early 30s. He was running at least 11 companies. They specialised in bedsits, the HMOs that we've been talking about, some of them with absolutely tiny rooms. In one of the cases, he told the court that he was running over 120 properties. And over the last decade, he and his companies have been fined in total at least £180,000 for running unlicensed HMOs. He was the first landlord ever to be hit with an antisocial behaviour injunction about harassment and illegal eviction of tenants. In one instance, council investigators were told how he forced a single female tenant out of her place by having her toilet removed, leaving the waste pipe exposed so she couldn't use the toilet. And when anyone else in the building did it, filled the air with foul smells. And then when she went out to find a toilet to use... They changed the locks. So there's kind of extraordinary um, aggressive tactics that he has used at times. And he was arrested earlier this year and jailed for contempt of court, again, relating to his landlord activities. So when the council were going in and looking at these rooms, can you give us a sense sort of visually of how small these spaces were? Yeah, well, from what I understand, he was subdividing kind of normal bedrooms with petitions that would run straight down the middle of the room, straight into the window. The petition would have to be cut around the radiator, so the single radiator would be heating two rooms. So one of the houses was this place in Cricklewood that was basically a seven-bedroom house, but he'd subdivided it into 16 studios, so more than doubling the amount of sleeping space, basically. They were taking enforcement action against him on all of these different grounds, But he seemed to be sort of taking it in his stride. It didn't seem to stop him. One housing officer involved in the case told me that they think that people like this build fines into their business model and take the hit. And that has led to concerns that the measures aren't strong enough. The fines and the banning orders and so on are just treated as sort of cost of doing business. 
What could the government do to strengthen the laws to stop rogue landlords like that operating? One idea that the select committee at the House of Commons on levelling up housing and communities has is that if there are repeat offenders like this, that the councils should be given the powers to take control of the property, to seize the property itself, Mm. because that is the high value asset. So if you're talking about a kind of £800,000 house in London and you're going to lose that, then you might think twice about it compared to if you're going to be fined 14,000 quid or whatever it is. It's a completely different order. Mm. It's quite a radical idea and it's one that was rejected by Theresa May's government when it was first proposed and the chairman of the committee is now calling for it again. We know that more homes are needed across the UK and every government that comes in pledges to build X number of new homes. This government has said it'll build 300,000 houses per year. But even if they reach that target, they're just making up for this ginormous backlog of years and years and years of underbuilding, aren't they? Yes, and I think the orthodoxy has been to rely on the private house builders to produce the housing supply. And the private house builders are rarely producing more than 200,000 homes a year. It just doesn't ever seem to have worked at the level that we now need. And so as you say, there's been a kind of an accruing backlog that's making the problem harder and harder for each successive housing minister to tackle. From all the reporting you've done on housing and especially the desperate need for more social housing in this country, what do you think the next government should prioritise? At the moment, there doesn't feel like there's a great deal of hope that any administration is going to say we're willing to create a vision for 10 years that in 10 years' time we're going to be in a better place by creating huge amounts of new, low-cost, affordable housing. Keir Starmer has talked about for Labour developing new towns, which is an idea that has been sort of widely welcomed. I think the new towns idea is probably the one around which the solution should be built because it's worked previously. Previous new town programme saw large numbers of people move out of London and other big cities into new towns. You know, places like the extension of Peterborough or Stevenage, The key thing is it didn't feel to them like they were being sent. It felt like they were going to places where they could start a new and better life. You know, there was a positivity about them. And so that's part of the reason why I think that the new towns approach might be the answer, because it allows for that element of positivity, that element of a whole new life could begin in a new town with all the new facilities and all of the new infrastructure that would appeal to people. To do that is going to take a significant amount of public investment and for housing to be treated at the same level as the health service and education in our political culture. If that can start to happen and voters can be persuaded of that, then a future government might have the wriggle room to do something as bold as that. We shall see. Rob, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Rob Booth. We mentioned at the start of the episode that he's been reporting as part of a Guardian series called Living Hell, Britain's Rent Crisis. And there are lots of really interesting articles from that at theguardian.com that you can read right now. I'd recommend Sammy Gedge Soiler's article, 
about the man taking on rogue landlords, as well as Rob's article about some landlords who don't have a mortgage but are still raising the rent for their tenants, and Josh Halliday's article that's full of advice for renters about their rights and where to go for help. The Guardian contacted lawyers for Mohammed Ali Abbas Rasool, the landlord we spoke about earlier, but didn't get a response. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in this episode, you can call Samaritans anytime for free on 116-123 or by email, that's joe at samaritans.org. That's it for today. I'm Hannah Moore and this episode was produced by Natalie Khtena and Ruth Abrahams. Sound design was by Adam Bransbury and the executive producer was Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The EY Tech Connect podcast brings you candid conversations about the most pressing priorities facing tech, media and entertainment and telecommunications companies and provide strategic insights on the key issues that matter to them, including topics such as the top 10 opportunities in tech, the next generation of gaming, the future of connectivity and content and the latest talent strategies. The EY Tech Connect podcast is out now. Download today from wherever you get your podcasts.